we are increasingly dropping titles and uh, position instead of looking into the roles we play in projects. So this is the kind of radically distributed and decentralized organization for just about 35 people that we've done over the last three years. And when we speak with, uh, for instance, corporates, they say, well, that's very nice, but uh, that's not possible at a, at a bigger scale. And then we say, well, there's no reason from a, a coordination standpoint or from a technology standpoint to not have a distributed organization with uh, tens of thousands of staff. It's just a question of uh, we have trapped in a 20th century uh, conception, probably even a 19th century conception, that as an organization grows, its organizational layers must grow, its hierarchy must grow, and this need for control must be exercised through a sort of top-down command and, and, for that matter, surveillance. Because I think there is a risk that, and we've seen that the last 30 years since the dawn of the modern internet, that just because technology potentially allows us to be free, that does not mean we will become free. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Boundaryless Conversations podcast, where we meet with pioneers, thinkers, doers, and entrepreneurs and speak about the future of business models, organizations, markets, and society in the rapidly changing world we live in. I'm Stina Heikele. I'm co-host of the show alongside Simone Cicero. Hello, Simone. Ciao. Good evening. And today, or maybe I should say tonight, we are also joined by Dr. Christian Bason. Christian is the CEO and leads the Danish Design Center a non-profit foundation backed by the Danish government. And previously, Christian was director of MindLab, the Danish government's innovation team, and business manager with Ramble Management Consulting. Uh, Christian is also the author of eight books on innovation, design, and leadership, including the latest one that we will uh, talk a little bit about in today called Expand, Stretching the Future by Design, published last year in 2022. So really great to have you here with us. Hello, Christian. Hello, good evening. Thanks for having me. I mentioned your latest book that you co-authored with Jens Martin Skipstead uh, last year. And reading about it and different interviews and so on that around the book, uh, we realized that Actually, the book didn't end up as you were imagining it because you ended up having some big discussions on you know, the role of design and design thinking and human-centered design in solving some of the big challenges of, of our time. So we would love to just open with that. You can take our listeners on this journey that you had and, and maybe also reflect on where you are now one year after the publishing of the book. Jens Martin, uh, my co-author, comes from uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, he's an award-winning uh, designer, uh, also in industrial design, and runs uh, today as a partner with a design company called uh, ManyOne. And uh, I, of course, come with a background more in uh, political science, uh, public policy, and designing for sort of larger societal issues. So we had each our perspective on the world of design, but also some overlaps, and we've been working together in various boards, uh, also both of us in the World Economic Forum for, for many years. And when we started the conversation on a new book on design, the starting point was really around sort of Denmark's unique position or Danish design and where that's heading. But very quickly, we realized that we were both passionate about the bigger questions in design at a more global scale, uh, even though Denmark is uh, our, our home country. And so it became a quite wide-ranging set of dialogues we had with each other as we started on the writing process of uh, what does the future hold for design, or, or even more importantly, what should the future hold for design as a 
this broad, wide-ranging discipline that we believe both of us holds uh, a lot of the, uh, the answers to uh, what the world needs, what humanity needs, but also what the planet needs. Uh, and that's kind of that became the starting point, and then we sort of uh, dare I say it expanded it from there. Can you also explain it for those who have, are not familiar with um, the thesis that you present in the book? So the ways of expanded thinking. Yes. So our premise is very much, I think, captured in an ancient quote by the American uh, designer Charles Eames, uh, who was asked uh, in an interview in the early 1970s by by a journalist, "What are the boundaries of design?" And the reason she asked. Eames, what are the boundaries of design was essentially that he was in the interview sharing uh, a, a very wide, very open perspective on, on the discipline of design, which I think is very much like the one I or we embrace today. And to the question, he answered, what are the boundaries of problems? And signifying that as problems and challenges expand, so must the discipline of design. And so what better podcast to discuss this in a podcast named Boundaryless? The notion that we have to expand our thinking and our conception of design as problems are accelerating, morphing, expanding. Today, we talk about holy crises, right? That we have this interlocking set of quite complex emerging crises on our hands, climate crises. Uh, we've had our occasional uh, pandemic. We have our armed conflict. Uh, we have... Uh, uh, accelerating healthcare challenges, uh, not least around mental health. We have big questions around uh, digitization and the role of technology in society, including AI. So all of these interlocking shifts happening around us and the transitions happening around us, the question becomes, how can we start thinking differently? And when you look at the history of design thinking uh, as the uh, you could say popular version of design that corporations and for that matter startups have have embraced quite extensively there's really a heavy focus on method and tools and ways of doing and you know some would say there's a design thinking process and so on but there's really not a lot of consideration within the field or within the literature for that matter around how we think in design thinking, how do we broadly think in design, in design activity? And so we wanted to catch on to that question of how do we expand our thinking and in what dimensions to better address the types of challenges we're seeing. So we propose in the book six different sets of expansions and, and each theme or each expansion is in itself a set of ideas that is maybe not a single idea, but could actually be more ideas. So for instance, number one is time, where we're exploring how do we think differently around time and put questions of time or time horizon into design work in a much more ambitious uh, and explicit way than we normally do. Whether that is very, very long-term thinking up to hundreds of years or even thousands of years, or whether that is even ultra short-term thinking, but simply having a conception of the time scale on which you we design and also different timescales depending on uh, the actors in an ecosystem we're designing with or for. Secondly, we're looking into uh, the idea of proximity, which means uh, how close do we feel or are we perceived of being to a problem? And we argue that a lack of proximity to a problem or lack of proximity to actors in a problem field means we don't care. And we don't act. So we need to enhance our feeling of proximity, our sense of empathy, our sense of 
creating value for something or someone. And we can use design and the approaches in design to start feeling closer to, for example, a challenge like, like climate change by allowing us at an experiential level, a tactile level to, to, to feel, to touch, to experience uh, the implications of, of a change like climate change or implications of, for example, what it's like to live in a refugee camp or, or similar. And the third expansion uh, in the book uh, is focusing on life. And the big question of whether design should still be concerned with humans or should design and designers uh, in a relatively massive way expand their perspective to include all living forms uh, and, and care for everything living, uh, all species and uh, all of nature uh, in a much more uh, coherent way. And, um, and so shifting in a way from or essentially shifting from human-centered to life-centered design. The fourth expansion. Um, we propose in uh, in the book is around value and the notion of uh, measuring value and appreciating value in business and for that matter in other endeavors in, in, in government and civic society and questioning whether financial and economic value is really still the standard we should work for whether we should not uh, expand our perspective to broader sets of impacts net positive impacts around social and and and, uh, and and green and climate and biodiversity and impact. So that's kind of connected to the life question, and really rethinking and uh, also just putting thinking about value into into design work. The fifth and second to last uh, expansion is around what we call dimensions, which is really asking some of the more difficult questions around uh, human machine interaction uh, and the scale, the digital scales, digital to human scales we work on, but also dimensions on a more physical scale. As we see people or enterprises going to Mars, uh, we see architects and designers very much concerned with some extraterrestrial work. Uh, what's the relevance of that to humanity and to the planet we're on? And how do we think uh, in a positive way around using different dimensions and scales to become uh, better at addressing problems at home? And then finally, number six uh, is sectors, which again fits quite well with the idea of ecosystems and networks and platforms, saying that we see uh, sectors needed to be maybe not expanded, but in a way maybe seeing sectors uh, actually imploding on each other, where uh, we see government becoming much more self-aware of their role in innovation. We see uh, the private sector becoming aware of its role in societal impact, and we're seeing other sectors understanding that they have to blend and mesh with each other to uh, to be relevant and to create long-term change. So, so, so sectors becoming sort of a, maybe a redundant term that should be really uh, both uh, you know, shift towards more circular practices around resource flows, but actually to much more networked uh, conceptions of, uh, of how we create value between actors. So those are the six expansions. And the experience we have with the book so far is that, that they are, uh, seem quite relevant as, as, as ways of entry points into a creative process or into uh, viewing problems differently or even into prototyping uh, solutions. Because they can, the six expansions can be used to really test uh, how, how uh, test your thinking and test the uh, ambition with which you are designing. First of all, this first question kind of messed up my uh, notes. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Already, I just repeat for the listeners. Right, you spoke about six dimensions: so dimensions of time, uh, proximity, uh, life. So you know, diversity of life, diversity of value, various dimensions. 
including, for example, how we relate with technology and uh, what I noted down as the end of sectors. So kind of uh, these six points. We're talking about a much wider scope. So if you think about scope as um, a wheat, can we also talk about the transformation in terms of modes, modalities, methods? Because, you know, we are, we're pretty much used to the design thinking process, but um, we have seen different ways to, to research uh, emerging, like, you know, from big data analysis, from uh, other types of approaches. So in terms of mode, what, what do you think is happening and what should be thinking about? Yeah, we could talk about mode or, or modality. And I, I, I do think that that we've had a, a, an era, a golden age of design thinking and of methods and process and toolkits, which uh, I and we both at MindLab and certainly at the DDC have taken a happy part in. And, and that will continue, obviously, because we need good frameworks. We need good processes. We need ways of addressing things. Um, we also need to bring those frameworks and methods and toolkits to the appropriate level. And I think that's happening increasingly uh, in, in work around sort of more, much more systemic ways of viewing change and viewing organizations and so on. Um, and so that shift where we're not, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but we are maybe moving the different frameworks we, we apply to a different sort of more, sort of more of a systems level. That's in a way also where the book is heading, right? But we are not doing it in a way where we say, here's a model. We're more saying, here are a set of considerations, a set of, we call it expansive thinking, which might be useful or helpful in informing the way you work with these matters, the way you work with uh, collaboration across sectors, or the way you work with concept of value creation, or the way you work with uh, the, the, the fact that uh, we very rarely make explicit what time horizon are we actually working on. Uh, we take implicit that, that everybody is on a five-year, three-year, or 10-year, whatever horizon. But as a matter of fact, most actors have very, many actors have very different conceptions of time, and that can have implications for the ability to, to uh, mobilize, the ability to co co collaborate, the uh, ability to find common ground in, in moving forward. So, so we are offering a framework that's in a way very flexible and very open and is not very prescriptive, but is in a way saying, have you thought about this? Wow. So what I was thinking here is, you know, you spoke about um, and the end of sectors, for example. We're talking about uh, new technical approaches that can extend and integrate a design, for example, with, uh, you know, every day we talk about the where the blockchain, for example, or data-driven decisions, AI, and so on. And so if I think about these two things, I end up with China, basically, right? So for me, the chain of thinking brings up the idea that we're moving away from the Washington Consensus into a multipolar world, where essentially the lostness of design is the lostness of modernity, basically, right? Uh, so what do you think about that? No, I think the analysis is correct that we are moving towards a multipolar world again, politically, militarily. We are seeing a regionalization rather than a globalization. In the book, we suggest that when it comes to a multipolar world in from an innovation or technology standpoint, that's probably a good thing. Uh, because uh, we, for too long, 
expected and gotten used to Silicon Valley producing the not only the technology or the software uh, or the customer experiences, but, but basically the visions for the future that we can all then gravitate towards. And now we're realizing that uh, with the tech lash and with some, some I think, deeply problematic uh, results of, of that sort of dominance or hegemony, that we need to take a broader view of where technology innovation can happen. And in, in a way, taking a designer's perspective, which is that we as humans can decide our, our fate and we can choose how we want to leverage technology in different ways. Now, that then has different expressions and the way in which, let's say, autocratic regimes have both historically and today are using technology for, for, for purposes of suppression versus how other societies might ask very deep questions around using technology for, for, for good. That gives us a very uneven playing field. We, we are saying that technology is not, is not ideology, right? So, so technology and innovations and approaches, we even argue that in the Soviet Union, there were examples of technology that was, uh, if not um, better than Western technology, at least uh, an alternative that could also be valuable that was forgotten because uh, it was sort of, you know, considered socialist technology, but actually it could have been useful if we a, a, a adopted it. So we must take a bit more of an agnostic perspective on innovation at the same time as we, of course, are very clear eyed around the, the political developments. As an example, right now, I think we are accepting and seeing that technology innovation in AI are happening at a rapid pace at multiple points around the world, some regions, of course, leading more than others. Now, the big question becomes, how do we then adopt and use AI in the interest of humans, in the interest of citizens, in the interest of societies? And that's a conversation that is just starting in a, in a, in a new way because of the uh, you know, rapid, rapid, rapid uh, access now to uh, generative AI. It's a dialogue we had just last week with uh, folks in Tokyo at the World Economic Forum uh, and where the question really becomes, what's the future of democracy in the context of AI? So I think we have these multiple movements happening uh, where we, on the one side, need to distinguish between the technology and the innovation on the one side and then the political and the policy implications on the other side. Uh, but it's, it's clearly a, quite a messy field we're seeing. And in a way, our book is sort of giving a framework for which to look at it although it's probably not giving you know, ultimate answers on it. I felt that um, we got very fast to the kind of core points that uh, modernity is finished. We are looking at the multipolar world. We're looking into uh, existential risks. So the interesting question is, what do you do after this acknowledgement, right? So re kind of rebasing yourself into this new dimension, what happens? Just maybe just a quick reflection that it's in a way all about agency. It's about taking agency and saying that we in design, in business, in government, in society, still can and should shape the world we want to live in. And that human imagination and ideas around what is good need to dominate no matter what technology we have at our disposal. You know, we are quoting uh, the David Graeber, the utopian uh, anthropologist, for you know saying that the secret uh, of the world is that we can shape it and make it in, the, in ways we want to. Uh, we just kind of forget, and we then become slaves of whether that's technology or its particular uh, ide ideologies. So, so I think ultimately our suggestion and our vision and our hope is that we humans will remain relevant and in, uh, in have agency, but, we, 
but we need to have agency in a way that this is that is sustainable, and that's also something we forgot, right? So 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 sustainability at a planetary level is is is, is core to the way in which we are going to have to innovate in the future. Yeah, I love this idea with agency and and. At the same time, sometimes it seems so daunting uh, to think that we have agency in light of uh, many of these enormously scaling forces, right? So we have on the one hand, I mean, uh, climate change that has these exponential dynamics and, and tipping points and, you know, planetary boundaries. And on the other hand, we also have the big tech you were mentioning a bit before. I was fascinated by your book, you know, when you mentioned this point on uh, that actually countries are sending tech diplomats to Silicon Valley and not the other side, the other way around. And it, it's a kind of fact that makes you, oh, that's that's kind of the world we, we live in. So this, it's kind of difficult sometimes to feel like that is not inevitable, that is not happening to us and that we are actually part of it. And I think, so I'm curious, where do we start to build that agency? And at the same time, don't you think that we also, at the same time, have to focus on kind of adaptive capacity yeah that's a really really good reflection it makes me think that design is agency or designing is agency and that's in a way the attraction of design to me i mean coming from political science originally writing my doctoral in design why, why was that interesting well it was interesting because i could see not just a way of thinking but also, of course also a way of doing that could assist us uh, originally in policy making, but increasingly, I think, actually in driving the transitions we need to drive. And so the agency is not anymore about the individual designer, however brilliant he or she may be, that's still great, but it's all about collective action. And, and, and you could say collective agency, how do we move together towards something that is better, that uh, brings us back into the safe uh, planetary zones we need to be in, uh, that keeps us within the, you know, the donut boundaries. And one thing that fascinates me and that is uh, obviously, or to me obvious uh, in design is that uh, we must simply find ways of stimulating our collective imagination. Uh, we're not the only ones arguing that. I mean, Jeff Mulgan's uh, recent book on uh, uh, Another World is Possible, I think is, is an excellent contribution to that discussion on the power of human imagination and, and the, uh, the, the need for us together to uh, propose, uh, make proposals around how could the future be better. That's also why we, at the Danish Science Center, my, in my, my, my daily work, are focusing quite heavily on a more of a mission-oriented approach to transitions and to change and actually to you know, bring, bring design and designers into that space because that is at least one framework that is giving us some way of working with both emergent action but also with intentional uh, you know, directionality. So, so I think coming back to the fundamental point that designing is all about agency and that, yes, we must be adaptive. That's also some form of agency, but uh, just adapting to forces around us is just not going to cut it because those forces are so powerful that we we need to shift the way systems work. We need to shift the way we work with these transitions. Otherwise, uh, you know, the figures are already daunting. I mean, the 1.5 uh, degree uh, climate or temperature increase is, 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 is something that most people that, 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 that know anything are well aware it's not going to happen. I mean, it's we're way beyond 1.5%, right? Uh, 1.5 degrees. So I think there's a need to embrace agency more. This actually maybe neatly leads us into another kind of topic. 
because we are working a lot on on looking at um, I mean emerging technologies and software development, software products, and how new software project can enable new ways of of organizing essentially platforms from the beginning, but now expanding into more thinking about modularity and building modular organizations helped by smart contracts and so on. It's kind of made me think that yes, developers have great agency actually because they build and they yeah. do design directly and they can really like see their impact in the digital world which is you know technology being so pervasive is also so much influencing our let's say analog world so what do you think about that well so first i mean i've i i, I grew up in the uh, 70s and 80s uh, uh, with microcomputers at a very very young age and uh, my first books were actually in uh, software or computer programming so i'm i've always been on the side that that sees technology as a fundamentally a positive force for change and been fascinated by developments in the field, even though I haven't worked as directly with it as such. However, when you're working with design today or working with uh, with uh, government, uh, digital and technology is a huge part of that. Now, I do think that, um, I mean, designers in the digital space have incredible power today, right? I mean, as you say, the, the ability to scale uh fast uh, and have huge impact is there that also means that those that are deeply involved in technology design have an incredible responsibility that i'm not so sure they're always aware of in asking the question just because we can should we and that's why both in the book but certainly especially the, the chapter on proximity uh, but also in the work at the Danish Science Center, we are focusing quite heavily on digital ethics or design ethics in, the, in, in technology. And, and these more fundamental question of questions that we must ask ourselves about just because we're able to do something, uh, is that, is it, should, should we do it? Is it actually good? And that's, of course, just been accentuated massively the last three, four, five months with uh, ChatGPT and uh, what's going on there, it, causing even some governments to temporarily... <laughs> Make it illegal and uh, and all kinds of other other interesting uh, things. So I think there's an incredible power there. I mean, I, I mentioned this in a keynote address last week to to digital leaders in the Danish uh, local governments. That is the glass half full or half empty on on on, on digital. I, I still think it's half full. I still think it's a it's a more positive. But we have seen the tech lash. There is a reason why Denmark was the first country in the world to have a uh, a tech ambassador, uh, as a, f- a formal ambassador of tech to, to 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 the tech giants, it's because it's been become as influential or even more influential than any nation state. And I'm not so sure that our governance mechanisms, our policy mechanisms, uh, and for that matter, our cultures of development and innovation are on par with the forces that are at play. Right. So, so you could say again, back to agency, we kind of need to bring a designerly perspective to the forefront, which is to ask good, deep human questions uh, and also planetary questions to technology and not uh, just uh, leaning back and saying, oh, but it's it's just coming and it's the way it is and uh, and we're just going to have to adapt to it. It's it's super, super interesting because at, at the end of the day, last uh, question, you kind of brought up this um, continuous, I would say, clash between uh, the more um, complexity-friendly mindset, like, you know, the dance with systems, 
And um, on the other hand, maybe the approach that, uh, for example, I recognize in a person like Indy Joar that I'm pretty sure you know very well, that uh, works to distribute agency into trees and rivers and whatever, right? The idea that we can approach this transition, at least we can try to approach it from a, an analytical and policy-driven uh, perspective uh, that uh, kind of makes things work. At the end of the day, between these two things, there is one thing that puts everybody on the same page, which is we have to build at the end, right? We have to build. So what is building, essentially, right? So recently, we have been talking to Chase Chapman. She uh, speaking about the, the, the Web3. She spoke about uh, two major layers, right? Uh, one, uh, what she calls socialware and one that uh, she calls trustware. You can think of socialware as how we organize, take decisions, and uh, the actual practice of it. And the trustware is more like the rules that we set that can self-execute on a digital ledger, for example. And I think, you know, in this, we lack at least two or three more layers, which is, for sure, we have software, which is what we build in terms of interacting with uh, technology. We also have resourceware, no? because it's uh, also about you know, the resources we use in these processes. And maybe somewhere we also have uh, some hardware, no? because we also need uh, trees and rivers and ec ecosystems. So when you have to build, you have to be able to um, describe it. You have to be able to prototype it and so on. So maybe the, the questions around design um, are, are you know, kind of twofold, at least. So one is more like the technology technical aspects, which is always more imbued of technology. And then there is more like an epistemic uh, aspect, you know, which is maybe, you know, also accepting conflict. Yeah, no, sure. Accepting conflict or friction. And increasingly, I mean, the, the, the big questions uh, that you're also kind of raising is uh, whether we are going the regulatory route. And, and, you know, the European Union is definitely more on that track, or we're we going uh, sort of a more of a code of conduct or more of a self-regulation self uh, route, right? In between that, of course, we have all kinds of hybrid models of, of, uh, of uh, combining different approaches. And I definitely agree that we have these multiple systems that, that are sort of interlocking in different ways, natural systems, uh, human systems, uh, physical systems, dark matter systems, if you, if you will, with, uh, on, on, on rules and, uh, and regulations and policies. And understanding how all of those mm, systems can work together for creating a sort of a forward movement towards something better, I think is the big design question. Because if there's one discipline we have as humans that allows many, many different professions and perspectives on the world to start seeing some of the same elements, to have a common language, to have common processes, it's design. So at that kind of scale, I, I don't see any other discipline or profession, in the, again, in the broadest of senses, that can help us work together uh, because of the increasing complexity and the, and the, and the depth of uh, knowledge and, and knowledge domains, it's really going to be so critical. As in, just to give you a very, very simple example, right now we are involved in a project exploring the social domain, uh, which crudely speaking is simply, you know, we would call it social infrastructure, which is how people live. And the other one is physical infrastructure, which is what, what kind of pipes and uh, physical uh, resources are we putting into the ground to drive the green transition. Wind power, uh, solar, new mobility forms, new types of buildings, and so on. 
uh, new types of energy, energy uh, transportation systems and, and whatnot. There's a very, very clear danger that we will be, again, forgetting life, uh, human life, but also na- uh, the initial domain as we make these massive, massive infrastructure investments. Just an example I heard yesterday, one, one Danish town, it's not even a city, it's more of a town, they are now hosting 80% of all solar panels in the country, in their landscape, uh, which means that their citizens, they're not benefiting any more than anyone else, but they'll be living in a world where they can look anywhere in their region without seeing solar panels reflecting the sun. Now, some would say that's beautiful, others would say it's not so beautiful, but it's a fact that their physical world has changed and nobody's thought about what about the social world. And so I think there are some, and this is getting quite crudely put, but there are these different systems that need to, to inter- in, interconnect. And we need to ask ourselves, how do we design for a, a transition that is also social? And that could also be mean in terms of diversity and equity and trust and justice and so on. What should a designer design then? So if you are left with this responsibility of choosing what to design, so um, let's not dive too deep, let's say, to assess if this responsibility is objective because the world uh, uh, is not stable anymore, okay? But what should the designer design? Well, so first and foremost, design is all about making decisions, yeah? So, so of course, there's responsibility when you make decisions and there needs to be a level of awareness when you make decisions. Now... I'm sure we we agree that design takes place and and its focus or emphasis or even disciplinary ability or or craft at very different scales and levels, right? From uh, visual communications to products to uh, services to systems and to, uh, I dare say, more sort of large-scale transitions. And I think being aware at what scale are we working and on on what sort of systems level are we we, we, uh, designing is, is, is one part of it. Uh, the responsibility at a very high level of design, I think, is to be aware and, and have a sensibility for the, the tactility and for the concreteness and for the uh, level of interaction that, that needs to take place if, if any big scale transition should become a reality, right? And the other way around, if you're working on, on branding, visual communications, on product design, being aware of what are the systems, what are the the big societal mechanisms that we are working into here and what is our responsibility in contributing to the, the forward-going momentum around you know, a net positive impact, even though we are working at a quite tactile level, is also there. So I think that, again, a level of awareness of how do we position a particular piece of design activity uh, and what kind of responsibilities follow with that and how are we then embedded into something even either bigger than what we're doing or how do we need to take uh, care for and understand something that is at a more granular level than what we're doing? I think that's, I mean, if you remember the amazing Hours of Ten uh, film by the Eames Design Office, uh, I think it was collaboration with IBM back in the 1970s, that zoomed from picnic in a park in Chicago up to the uni- universe through the solar systems, up, up into out of the, the solar system and, and uh, out of the Milky Way into the universe, and then zoomed back into a hand of a person sitting in that picnic blanket in the park and then into a subatomic level, uh, that kind of zooming in and zooming out is what we need to do conceptually uh, in design work. Uh, and we need to zoom in and zoom out, not just on sort of physical scales like the powers of 10, but we need to zoom in and zoom out on, on values, on time horizon, on entities we work with, on actors in the network. So I think the obligation of design is really to be able to work 
in a very, very flexible way and, and with a very high level of awareness of what kinds of responsibilities go with the territory in which we're designing. I still wanted to see if we can uh, come back to the question also on, we said that yeah, developers have agency and they have a lot of power potentially, uh, right? But then if we go to the more micro level of, of an organization, what have you seen in that sense? Uh, because we have witnessed, because we have been talking obviously with a lot of people from Web3 and people really focusing on, on the te- software uh, architecture and design, seeing how software development is influencing organizational shape and how the, the organization is is structured allowing much more flat organizations you know self that we already talked about this kind of decision making protocols and so on yes so in fact the uh, expand is only my second uh, to last book because uh, two weeks ago i published the the most recent one which is uh, called uh, uh, in Danish, the organization was set free and the leadership must uh, had to be rediscovered. That's literally the title. So a very, very long one. It's kind of the format from the, from the publisher. Now, the point in that book is kind of the experiment we ran in the Danish Design Center on, on a radically decentralized organization that in a way certainly is powered by, enabled by technology in the sense that without the types of sort of ambient communications tools we have at our, our fingertips today, it would kind of be much, much harder to realize but and and, and in, in some ways you could say that what we are doing with our organization is sort of a, just just taking the consequence of what technology allows us to do, namely a distributed leadership. So every every colleague chooses his or her own leader. Every colleague can offer him or herself as a leader for others. Everyone votes with their feet in terms of what tasks and what jobs to take on. We are increasingly uh, dropping titles uh, and uh, position instead of looking into the roles we play in, uh, in in projects. So this is the kind of radically distributed and decentralized organization for just about 35 people that we've done over the last three years. And when we speak with, uh, for instance, corporates, they say, well, that's very nice, but uh, that's not possible at a, at a bigger scale. And then we say, well, there's no reason from a, a coordination standpoint or from a technology standpoint to not have a distributed organization with uh, tens of thousands of staff. It's just a question of uh, we are trapped in a a 20th century uh, conception, probably even a 19th century conception, that as an organization grows, its organizational layers must grow, its hierarchy must grow, and this need for control must be uh, exercised through uh, sort of top-down command and for that matter surveillance. Because I think there is a risk that, and we've seen that the last 30 years since the dawn of the modern internet, that just because technology potentially allows us to be free, that does not mean we will become free. In fact, the world is less free today than 30 years ago, fewer democracies uh, today than 30 years ago, much more autocratic uh, regimes in some parts of the world than 30 years ago. And the use of technology in the hands of those regimes, also some that are quite close to Europe, being used for suppression, surveillance, for exercising power, also uh, not regarding necessarily uh, people's rights. So I would say that when it boils down to it, we have to understand what technology enables us to do, but you have to make choices from a leadership or management perspective, from an organizational perspective, on what kind of organization do you want, on what values do you want to base it. And what we chose at the Danish Design Center, uh, my colleagues and I, was to say we are going to ground this organization 
in what we fundamentally believe about human nature, right? Sort of drawing on uh, Rutger Bregman and uh, humankind and that kind of uh, vein saying, we fundamentally choose to believe and we also think the evidence is there to, to make it uh, also uh, a scientific uh, fact that humans are good and want to do good and want to do their best and want to help others and will take responsibility under the right circumstances, will take do leadership and, and, and uh, take leadership under the right circumstances. If that is true, then we must just design an organization that allows that. Technology is an enabler of that, but it does not start with technology. It starts with what we believe in about people. Thank you. Very fascinating to know how you have organized yourself uh, as well. But do leaders now absolutely have to be very tech savvy in your opinion and know a minimum about how software works? I think it's a dilemma, right? Because just a piece of software like Slack enables us to be this kind of much more ambient and collaborative organization that we otherwise could have been. Does that mean I need to understand the uh, software in depth or the uh, programming or the code? I don't think so. I think we, we can definitely operate at a very different level. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't understand that uh, if the internet breaks down then or the connectivity is gone, then we, we then the, the software is, is not available anymore. There's a vulnerability to, to, to technology as well. We need to be aware of there's a question of to what extent is, uh, is software uh, still uh, inhibiting us from doing things. I mean, I don't know how many times I worked in organizations where we say, oh, it would be really, really helpful if the software could do that. And then somebody looks at us and says, well, uh, that may be possible, but that would require all this coding and cost as much money and three months down the road, then maybe it'll be possible. And so clearly there's a need to understand how software and technology is also limiting our possibilities. And I, I very much you know, embrace sort of a much more... Mm, app-driven or modular approach to a technology where we can shift in and out and, 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 and take on new, better products as soon as they're available and, 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 and mix them with what else we've got. And, and then, of course, have sort of uh, the relevant APIs and the ability to, to share data. So there's a big piece of that, definitely. That being said, again, I think fundamentally that the best organizations on the planet those that are most successful, and also some that are maybe not doing that much good for the world, but are still very, very successful. They're the organizations that are able to unleash the creative power of people, the intellect of people, those organizations that are extremely good at experimentation, rapid experimentation, rapid learning, and then, as you say, building, uh, doing things based on that learning that are better than, than what they had before. And so that's a very, very human thing. Even though, of course, obviously, those organizations also leverage technology for their experiments, for their learning, and some of it can be definitely uh, be automated. But still, I think ultimately, it's about building a culture in an organization. So you said something extremely important, right? There are less democracies than a few years ago, more autocrats. And I was reflecting that maybe the situation in the world is requiring autocracies. I was reading this article that I really encourage everybody to read. The author is Wildermuth. He wrote this piece called uh, The Future is Fascist. There are many that uh, are kind of bringing up this uh, idea that uh, uh, more, I would say, direct ways are needed 
and the future, right? To control uh, the situation. So, if, for example, you spoke about humans are in- intrinsically good, they will take responsibility if needed. But I'm skeptical, for example, we are taking responsibility for migrants. That's not going to happen. At the end of the day, I think keeping with this narrative of success on the market, it's good, you know, creativity, whatever. I don't know. I feel like we should be thinking about something different and really facing these kind of um, existential questions and these multiple crises more heads on, especially as designers, right? What do you think? No, we should. And again, I'm back to the point around agency that we know that the, just to paraphrase an anthropologist, that the only thing that's ever changed anything in the world is actually a, a small group of citizens that are uh, dedicated uh, to, to change. Uh, that, that's what changes things. It's, it's, it's pe- groups of people together deciding to make a change, right? It's the only thing that's ever changed the world. That also means going against the fascism or against uh, the autocrats if, uh, when that is uh, needed. I think at a fundamental level, we need to ask ourselves, uh, as one of my colleagues actually said uh, recently, when discussing organizational design and, and how we are in the world, are we driven by fear? Are we driven by love? And that's a quite pretty big question to ask in, 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 in an organization. Uh, but if you think about the implications for that, I mean, if we were driven by love, not fear, then maybe the way we dealt with my, uh, migrants would be different. If we were driven by love, not fear, in terms of uh, our planet, our nature, our all living things, then the way we relate to nature would probably be different. If we fundamentally believed in organizations that humans want to do their best and that they want to help each other. Again, the proximity point is that we mostly want to help people that are close to us, that we feel or perceive are close to us and more like us. There's clearly some biases in there that I don't want to diminish. But if we do fundamentally believe that people are good, want to do their best and want to help, then we would not design most of the organizations we have on the planet today that way. We just wouldn't because most organizations are still designed, including those, the leveraging technology for control from the premise that probably someone is trying to cheat, that probably someone is not being active on their computer working from home, that they're probably not online, that they're probably not being responsible, that they're probably thinking about how to work uh, the least possible and so on which I fundamentally reject that notion, right? Uh, if that is the case, then it's because we have actually created that culture. We have instilled that culture and that perception in people uh, through fear and through uh, control. So those are some of the big questions we have to ask. And, uh, and, and given the, we all can agree on the crises, not only meeting the world from that vantage point, but also meeting the world with hope and with vision and imagination for a better future is absolutely critical. Uh, Someone like Jeff Mulgan uh, has uh, more or less, I think, directly said that the biggest crisis we have today are probably none of those crises. It's a crisis of imagination. And we see by surveys that, you know, uh, none of us, neither the older generation nor uh, the the young generation, believe that the future will be better than than the past. And that's a horrible thing from a design perspective, because if we don't can't see a better future. How can we design for it? Yeah, definitely. We also had uh, Malgan on the on the show in this season, actually. You might have said something similar then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it, it's and and if we just stay on, we have a hard time to imagine, uh, like you said. And still, what do you imagine? Like kind of as we move into the end of the conversation, with the Danish Design Center, you have done some work on mission oriented innovation, which will require sort of new forms of collaborations. And I don't know if we want to go. T- as far as to say new orga- organizational yeah, forms uh, or new institutions. Yeah, yeah. 
But what do you imagine in that space, in, in the positive scenario? Well, I do think we have to invent uh, and innovate new types of organizational forms and structures uh, that are uh, more humanly sustainable if, if, and also able to work uh, in complexity, work in ecosystems, and work with directionality, or work with visions, uh, and work with uh, designerly approaches to experimentation and to change. Uh, I, I do think we need to do that. I think the notion that the institutions we've inherited from the 19th and 20th centuries will serve us well in the 21st century uh, with the types of challenges we are experiencing and we've made for ourselves is, uh, is pretty hopeless. So, so there's a huge task of organizational innovation in front of us that we in our own small way are trying to work on in the DPC. I think a lot of others are doing something similar. At the same time, that needs to be informed by how we create long-term impact uh, in society and in our world. And of course, that's something that we all can see we must do in and with and ecosystems of actors. So that sort of outer boundary or the outer world of ecosystems of actors that, that need to work together and function in, 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 in ways that drive the needed transitions, and then uh, organizational innovations that allows us to build the types of institutions and, and the types of ways in which people collaborate and work together, uh, they, they need to go hand in hand. I think we see the when the cusp sort of seeing what that might look like. I think some of the work you're doing, some of the work many of those probably in this podcast are doing, some of the work in leadership and organization and uh, or reinventing organizations is all sort of pointing in some of the same directions. But I think what strikes me is that we have a level of urgency uh, you know, we don't have a generation to to trial and error this. We we, we need to accelerate these developments. Uh, we have to move fast because the pace of uh, sort of the destructive forces is uh, is is quite high, and uh, so we need to sort of get ahead of that. And that's that urgency. I'm not so sure. I see that. Maybe we see the entrepreneurship. Maybe we see it in the tech world, but we're def- definitely not seeing the agency sufficiently unpacked in uh, in government, for example, or in in, uh, in corporates, which. Uh, uh, many of the corporates in the world that employ a lot of people and have incredible resources at their hands are in many ways stuck and, and don't know how to move forward. They don't know how to connect their technology capabilities, their ID capabilities on the one side with societal impact on the other side. Thank you so much. I, I wish we you know, had uh, more time to, to stay and, and chat about all these things. We are uncovering new topics. Before we, we close the, the episode, we wanted to ask you to leave uh, some breadcrumbs for our listeners as our tradition. Yes. One thing uh, that I'll uh, leave you with is that there was a few years ago, there was a, a Harvard Business Review article that said uh, why managers must read more science fiction. And uh, whether it's science fiction or whether it's literature, but I think diving into fiction is one approach we need to embrace more to stimulate our imagination and and also deal with some of the complexities and the ethical dilemmas of being human in the world. Personally, I'm looking forward to uh, the next season that's upcoming on uh, of Black Mirror uh, because that's probably one of the pieces of uh, fiction slash science fiction uh, in popular culture that has been most sort of provoking and uh, and maybe in some way influential in, uh, in in our thinking around technology and being and being human uh, and what society might look like in the future so so that might be a breadcrumb that not only uh, read more science fiction but also uh, join me uh, in watching when uh, black mirror appears on your screen again
I think it was an amazing conversation. There's so much that I have on my notebook that I couldn't, um, uh, you know, directly throw into the conversation. But I think we really uh, touched into, I would say, the the, the hardness of the um, context. You know, the, the the this kind of fatigue that uh, it's involved in in uh, uh, looking for new ways. You know. Uh, because the frames are fairly solid and it's really hard to break them. You know, if you think about all these uh, um, systemic lock-ins that basically prevent us to imagine something different. Thank you so much. I mean, it was a pleasure to have you and, and uh, I'm really look, very much looking forward into your, your upcoming you know, writings and, and, and more podcasts. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll be looking forward to publishing the uh, the next book. Uh, in a way, it's about the seventh expansion, right? About the future of organization and leadership. Uh, I'll, we'll publish that in English uh, most likely next year. Uh, so uh, happy to share that with you at that point. And uh, from my side, just say this has been a quite wide ranging conversation, uh, very much driven by, by your great questions and, and reflections. So thanks for the opportunity. And uh, I, uh, I really look forward to uh, continuing the work and keeping up hope because I think that's uh, fundamentally what we need. Thank you, Christian. Again, as you have seen, we're not shying away from any topic, any any hard questions. And I think that's important <laughs> to to also put all the possible questions on the table and, and unpack them like you have done so beautifully. Very nice um, values that you embed in your organization and in your work as well. We hope that uh, the listeners enjoy this episode. When you, If you want to follow Christian's work and check more about the Danish Design Center and, and other collaborations that he have and what he's up to, you will find all the information in the show notes of this episode. If you go to boundaryless.io slash resources that podcast, you will find the episode there and all the links uh, that you need. Thank you also, Simone, for this evening. Thank you so much. Great to be here with you. And to our listeners, uh, until we you hear us again, remember to think boundaryless. I think that this episode was a great one. You know, what I bring home is that uh, this lostness we have been talking about in design and, and entrepreneurship in general uh, can really be a starting point to go beyond uh, the frames that we are used to, you know, ponder when we think about building new things and ventures and, 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 and you know, developing our ideas. And I think uh, Christian's dimensions uh, you know, give us a bit uh, of a um, starting map uh, to go beyond uh, the frames. Yeah, I think it's uh, great to be able to have these uh, earnest conversations with people who are really working to to change uh, the way we approach problems. Um, and it's interesting that someone so deeply involved with design as the Danish Design Center also takes that critical stance on actually what is design and how do we use it.